the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. My name is Amber Ashley James. I'm an abolitionist, a lawyer, an organizer, a dog lover, a black woman. What radicalized me? I love this question and I was thinking about it this morning. I would probably start with my grandfather, my dad's dad, who was incarcerated for 17 years. And I didn't know him super well because he was in prison when I was growing up and then he passed away when I was 10. But as I've gotten older, looking back, I can think about the way that having an incarcerated father must have affected my dad and therefore must have affected my relationship with him. What a lot of people get wrong about the quote-unquote criminal punishment system or criminal legal system is that they think it's, okay, well, this is where we put the bad guys and punish people who have done bad things. And in reality, for every incarcerated person, their entire family and all of their loved ones suffer as well. It's a punishment for the entire family. And if you're not careful, that kind of generational violence and trauma can just get passed down. And so it's taken a lot of years of doing healing work and therapy to make sure that wounds inflicted by the carceral state on my grandfather and therefore my dad and therefore me can sort of stop with my generation. So I think that was the beginning of my sense of, yeah, something about this shit ain't right. I remember writing a paper, a research paper, when I was in eighth or ninth grade on racism and the death penalty and looking into all of the different racial demographics of, you know, likelihood of getting the death penalty if the victim is white versus black, likelihood, you know, all of those types of things. And again, I think I was in eighth or ninth grade and looking at all those research, doing interviews with lawyers who had represented people on death row, I was just like, again, some other shit ain't right. Smells like racism, looks like racism. So that was another moment of just sort of the beginnings of an awakening, I would think. And then in graduate school, when I was in law school specifically, I was representing indigent defendants, so, you know, poor people. My first client was a young woman who was in court trying to get her driver's license back. Her license had been suspended because she had tickets that she couldn't pay because she was poor and she had gotten tickets for, you know, a broken taillight or something and didn't have money to fix it because she was poor and then she didn't have a license anymore so she couldn't drive to work, just the whole thing. And I was just like, if you had money, you wouldn't even be here. <laughs> like, you could be living your life, you could be at work, you could be taking care of your kids, whatever. So like, why are we dragging people into court and disrupting their whole lives and their livelihoods just because they're poor? And that's a narrative that I think runs true for the entire criminal punishment system. My second client was a man that I refer to publicly as Mr. Brown, who was incarcerated. And so I went to see him in jail every week. 
and every week you know we would talk about his case and what was going on but also just like how things were going on the inside and all of the mistreatment that he was suffering he was jumped basically he was robbed shortly before he got arrested and his hand was really messed up and the COs wouldn't let him see a doctor to get his hand sorted out. The food inside was terrible and so he was eating ramen noodles every day and you know a couple ramen noodles cost a dollar on the inside and he's not making any money. He's spending money trying to call his kids and his girlfriend money that he doesn't have and I was just like again why is this system extracting all of this money and inflicting all of this violence and harm on this person? So visiting him every week and, you know, having to go and go inside the jail, go inside the belly of the beast to see how people were being caged up like animals and treated worse than animals. That was another really radicalizing experience. And I don't you, you can't forget that. I would call my mom on the way home crying, just like shocked and appalled and disgusted at how society was treating him and all of these people just like they were disposable, just throwing people away. So I think the entry point for me was understanding the carceral state and the prison industrial complex and how prisons just chew people up and spit them out. And then from there, I was like, okay, well, why do police and prisons exist? And then you start doing all that research and it's, hmm, slavery. That's the answer, you know? The first police were slave patrols and the first prisons were plantations. And so then really reckoning with with that history and that legacy. And then it's like, what are the origins of slavery an entire system built to extract labor from stolen people on stolen land? And then you start talking about capitalism and it's just like, okay, well now we have the police as the protectors of property and wealth at the expense of everybody else. And having a critique of capitalism being, you know, that's my, my, I'd say political education sort of evolved from understanding police and prisons as evil and racist to understanding a capitalist system as necessitating the existence of police and prisons and mapping that and then understanding the role of the U.S. empire as inflicting harm on black and brown people domestically and also globally. The way that we think about policing domestically is what the military is doing all over the world. You know, there's like 800 military bases all over the world, drone strikes, coups, economic sanctions, just all of the ways in which the U.S. empires inflict violence, especially on poor black and brown people. Again, to hoard more wealth, extract more resources, enact more control. And so all of those things just sort of started to coalesce in my head. But I think the beginning was looking around and just understanding that policing and prisons was just really fucked up. and then layering on from that experience, from again, my personal experience of representing a man who was incarcerated, having my grandfather who was incarcerated, just those personal experiences. Then from there, I was able to start reading some of the theory, start organizing with people and, and have a more sophisticated understanding of how capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, all these things work together. But, you know, the theory comes later. The theory gives language to what you observe with your own eyes and experience in your own body or in your own family. I think it's really important to start with your own life and your own experience, your own family, your own observations. You don't have to read Marx to know that capitalism's fucked up. You don't have to read Fanon or Kwame Ture or other radicals and revolutionaries to understand 
the U.S. empire as an imperialist power that's inflicting violence all over the world, it starts really with your own life and your own experience and just looking around and, and trusting that gut instinct that tells you that something about this shit ain't right. For anybody listening to this, it's like, where do I start? Just look around starting from a personal experience a personal observation and then allowing the theory the organizing the struggle to give language to what you've already observed or experienced at least that's how that's how i was radicalized it doesn't make sense you can't look around and see people treating other people like that and think that it's okay or that it's right there's just not enough there's not enough propaganda i don't care what pop patrol is saying i don't care what law and order is saying it's just not right to treat humans that way and I hope that people really lean into just opening their eyes and whether it's personal experiences or just observations leaning into that gut feeling that says this isn't right and then the theory organizing struggle all of that comes later I think with respect to Palestine and I get this question a lot like what why did you like how did you get radicalized why can we not stop talking about this and I think what happened for me was I visited Palestine for the first time when I was in my second year of law school, so spring of 2018. Harvard did a trek, like a spring break trip for people to go to Palestine and, and see occupation and apartheid up close. And I said, great, sign me up. You know, in retrospect, I realized that even just being able to go is an incredible privilege because millions of Palestinian people are not allowed to go back to their own homeland, even just to visit. So I think with that privilege comes a lot of responsibility, which is why I'm so vocal about this. There were several experiences on that trip where I was just like, we, you know, we visited refugee camp, visited the apartheid wall in Bethlehem. And I was just like, this really <laughs> is like the Jim Crow South. It's really like a combination of the Jim Crow South, Native American genocide and South African apartheid just all rolled into one. And I think being a descendant of enslaved Africans and also Native Americans, I was just primed to really be able to see that clearly pretty quickly the connections between the way that Native Americans and enslaved Africans were treated in the U.S. and just a lot of those parallels really really jumped out at me. So that was the beginning of my radicalizing journey there and then again it comes from the personal experience and then you start reading the theory about like what is settler colonialism what is this sort of imperial hub outside of the U.S. but backed by billions of dollars of the U.S. you know they're using the same tear gas on Palestinian protesters that they are on Black Lives Matter protesters there are just so many parallels understanding the project of expanding the reach of the American empire is having this quote-unquote democracy in the Middle East that's built on stolen land, <laughs> just like the U.S. is built on stolen land and is a hub for the U.S. to expand its influence in the region. And by influence, I mean violence, obviously, because what else is the U.S. spread around the world but violence? and inflicting that violence specifically on a racialized indigenous population, which again, is exactly how America got here. You know, you have colonizers showing up and saying, oh, we're, you know, religiously persecuted, whatever, let's show up and then we'll start our own country. And how do they do that? By committing genocide against all of the thriving native communities that existed well before their arrival. And I think the story of Palestine is really similar, where you have a repressed religious group showing up and saying, well, we need to stay.
state. And we're going to get a state by using violence and Zionist gangs to expel 800,000 Palestinian people from their own land. And we're going to maintain our quote unquote Jewish majority in that state by keeping those people out, by killing off as many as possible and inflicting as much violence as possible so that we can maintain our majority. And, you know, again, I just think the parallels are super strong between a mix of apartheid South Africa and native genocide in the U.S. and the treatment of enslaved Africans. And then after the end, the formal end of chattel slavery, establishing a Jim Crow regime of formal racial segregation and learning about all of the laws, the dozens and dozens of laws, I think it's up to like over 100 now that distinguish and discriminate between Jews and non-Jews in Israel, you know, quote unquote Israel, understanding that. And when you say Jews and non-Jews, it's really like white Jews and everybody else because it's not like race just magically disappears, you know. African populations inside of quote unquote Israel have been resisting police violence and police brutality for years. You know, Ethiopian Jewish women were sterilized. Like the racialized violence doesn't disappear even within Jewish communities inside of the lines of quote unquote Israel. So all of those, all of those similarities just really jumped out at me. Just really jumped out at me the first time that I went. And I just looked around and I was like, this shit ain't right. You know, I understand that everybody wants peace, everybody wants safety, but I'm just looking around like, if if this is what peace looks like, y'all could keep it. (laughs) Like, there's nothing about these refugee camps, these Bedouin communities whose homes are being bulldozed every other week. Like, there's just nothing about this theft, exploitation, and exclusion that is right. So we have to be able, we have to have a language of how do we promote peace? How do we promote justice? How do we promote safety for everybody? And that to me is really where people get people get fucked up because the similarities, again, between the conversations around policing in the U.S., it's always public safety. We need police because of public safety. And it's like public safety for who? Like who who is the beneficiary of this quote unquote public safety and why does public safety for white people depend on black and brown people and poor people and queer people and disabled people being terrorized? Like what is what kind of safety is that? I think the conversation around Palestine is really similar that Zionists will say, well, we need a Jewish majority in the state for safety. We need these walls for safety. We need these these bombings for safety. And it's just like, why is that safety dependent upon terrorizing the Palestinian people? Why is that safety dependent upon all these bombing campaigns, all these walls, all these checkpoints? Like, why is your safety dependent upon someone else's oppression? It doesn't sit right. Because I'm looking around, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense like when the U.S. say it, when they're talking about policing. And it doesn't make sense when I hear Zionists say it either. We all have to figure out how to exist in safety. That is a safety for everybody. And you can't build safety on stolen land. You can't build safety on oppression and violence and racialized minority. You just, that's not safety. That's, it's something else, but y'all need better words for it. We have to want more for each other than this, you know? I want things to give me hope. And by the way, I think being an abolitionist is very much a discipline of hope. Like if I didn't believe the world that could be better, I wouldn't be committed to tearing down all of the things that are making it terrible and building up a better world in its place. Like I do believe in a hope discipline, but like we can't hope in war criminals. Having black and brown and female people 
doing the work of inflicting violence and extracting resources and facilitating climate catastrophe and wars like we don't need to root for those people <laughs> they are not our heroes they are not girl bosses they're something else but you know so i want i really just want us all to want better and to want more and to dig into you know the revolutionary elders lessons of struggle that we can learn from but it's not these elevated celebrity politicians or war criminals it's the people only the masses of people mm-hmm.